No time to banter today, Eamon. We've got so much to cover in this episode. So much to condense, for sure. <laughs> the Six-Day War of 67 and its bold sequel, the Yom Kippur War of 73. But you are still alive, right? Alive and thriving. Good to hear. Now let's get straight into it. Yes, we've finally reached the climax of the Cold War in the Middle East. Well, a climax, at least. The outcomes of both the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War are relatively well-known, less so the political machinations leading up to them. We'll do our best, dear listener, to take you behind the scenes of the corridors of power and into the minds of Arab and Israeli leaders. No one wanted war, yet war arrived. Why? That's our question. These two wars were transformative. Nasserism was out and radicalism was in. And in the ongoing clash of civilizations in the Middle East, a new and improved player emerged from the wreckage of war, radical Islamism. <laughs> Are you excited, Eamon? <laughs> of course, of course. Okay, now I can trace the roots of my ideological you know, youth <laughs> to the, the <laughs> 1960s and 1970s. The Six-Day War was a turning point in the history of the modern Arab world. Arabs were left traumatized by their spectacular defeat. The Nasserist project was thoroughly discredited, and so a huge Egyptian transition began, away from the Soviet Union and toward the United States, away from a centralized command economy and toward crony capitalism, away from Arab nationalism and toward Egyptian nationalism. And all of these changes had huge reverberations across the region. But in the years running up to the 1967 war, things had changed since the first clash between Israelis and Arabs in 1948. Israel's victory in 48 is largely down to the corruption of its Arab enemies. They were weak regimes, still dependent upon colonial powers and internally disunited. But by 1967, this had all changed. Arab states were now independent. They were centralized. They were heavily armed and radically nationalistic. Syria and Egypt had Soviet military advisors as well as armaments. So even though with hindsight, we know that Israel soundly defeated the Arabs, before the war began, an Israeli victory was far from certain. Okay, Eamon, give me the global Cold War context in the run-up to the 67 war. We're in 63, 64. What's the world like at the time? Many listeners, you know, will be thinking right now that, oh, we have a war in Ukraine, we have a war, you know, where the Taliban, you know, took over Afghanistan, we have, you know, crisis here, crisis there. You know, if they were living, you know, in the 1960s, <laughs> I don't know what they will do. They will go into significant panic <laughs> because 1962, you know, in October, November, the world came really pretty close to nuclear annihilation. The Cuban, the Cuban Missile, Missile Crisis. crisis. Yeah. Absolutely. So can you imagine? And then a year later, almost a year later, in 1963, in November, President Kennedy was assassinated. Wow. Yep, that's true. Imagine if, it, I mean, we, we can't really imagine it now. It's, it must, it was so huge. The channels of information were really scarce. You know, people were depending primarily on, you know, radio, newspapers, and, uh, you know, a few TV stations. That's it. So, 
it was a really panic-stricken world at the time. 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis. 1963, Kennedy was assassinated. 1964, the Vietnam, Vietnam starts. Yeah. <laughs> so, you the know, world like, was crazy. Absolutely. You know, 1962, uh, China invaded India, or at least like in a part of India, and there was a war between India and China. I mean, the specter of war between India and Pakistan was always ever-present. You know, the world was not exactly a very happy place at that time, or it didn't seem uh, so. So that is why we understand that the Middle East was not... The, the Cold War dynamics in the Middle East did not happen in a vacuum. You know, the entire world was in turmoil. Zooming down into the regional level, I mean, we're talking about the Middle Eastern heartland here. Israel and Palestine, Syria, Jordan, and of course, Egypt. What's the status quo at the time there in terms of the borders? I mean, tell us about the Green Line. If you go to 19... 19- 62, uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6. You know, these years, the Israeli borders were pretty much, you know, you take away the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan Heights, and that's what Israel looked like at the time. So it is from, you know, uh, from the Lebanese-Israeli border, there was a demilitarized zone. The Golan Heights, all of it basically was a demilitarized zone. And then you have the Green Line, which separated the West Bank you know, from uh, Israel proper, including even a green line uh, barricaded, you know, and kind of scary in the middle of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was divided into East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. West Jerusalem, Israeli. East Jerusalem, Jordanian. It's important to say, I think, that it wasn't the Green Line wasn't really a border it, because there there had only been an armistice after the forty eight war, not a yeah. peace treaty. So in effect, the war, uh, that war, the war of Israeli independence, never ended. Yeah. So actually, East and West Jerusalem resembled, you know, East and West Berlin to an extent, except basically there was far greater movement, you know, between the two sides for religious reasons. It's more like, you know, if people in Northern Ireland will, you know, who are listening to this, they will remember the Green Line in uh, Belfast. I mean, it's something similar to that between the two communities. Exactly. So as you say, there were there were DMZs uh, with Jordan and Syria. Mainly, I mean, with Lebanon too, Lebanon doesn't really come into it. Uh, and across the Jordan and Syria DMZs, there had been fighting back and forth, and especially with Syria. Now, as for Egypt, right, remember, dear listener, Israel had taken Gaza and much of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt during the Suez Crisis in 1956. But after the crisis, under international pressure, they had withdrawn, and Suez and Gaza were being patrolled by the United Nations Emergency Force, the UNEF. Which, of course, leaves Jordan, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which had occupied and annexed the West Bank in the 1948 war. So they were controlling Jerusalem. They were controlling all of the holy places in the region, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. But it might surprise the listener to know that at that time, Israel actually had quite a good working relationship with King Hussein. Well, King Hussein was always pragmatic, to be honest. I mean, at the end of the day, he realized that, okay, these are the people on my border. I need to keep Jerusalem um, as part of my fiefdom, part of my kingdom, part of my legacy, part of my inheritance, because King Hussein realized that, you know, his grandfather and his great-grandfather lost Mecca, Medina, you know, and the Hejaz to the House of Saud. And so we talked all about this in the last episode on the Hashemites. Exactly. So he needs to keep Jerusalem and he realized you know, and if you if you, if you read many of the interviews, basically that he gave throughout the years, of course, in hindsight, he was always sounding regretful. You know about you know participating in any of the Arab foolishness regarding like you know annihilating Israel and all of that because he realized he lost the West Bank and Jerusalem because of that. 
He had some other difficulties too, internal difficulties. I mean, his regime was Western-leaning on the whole, uh, but it was always being opposed by the Palestinian majority inside the country. Remember, he was ruling not just the present-day Jordan, but also present-day West Bank. So the majority of his country were Palestinians. They were fervently pro-Nasser. They were fervently pro-Arab nationalism. And so the revolutionary Arab regimes like Syria, like Egypt, were always interfering internally in Jordanian affairs, putting King Hussein in a tight spot. Absolutely. And this is the problem is that like, you know, the, the, the Palestinians at the time were started to fashion themselves as the new cool kids you know, of the revolutionary scene globally. I mean, you remember, these are the 1960s. These are the days of Castro, Che Guevara, you know, all of these, you know, revolutionaries like, you know, you know, parading around, you know, with their berets and all of that and the military uniforms. And, you know, they are the cool kids, you know, the socialists, you know, the leftists. So the Palestinians started to fashion themselves around that image of global socialist, internationalist, revolutionary solidarity. And this is where it clashed completely with the image of the calm, stoic monarchy of Jordan. Okay, so that's the regional political status quo. Now, let's drill into the Israeli government's mind at the time. After the Suez Crisis of 56, right, the Israeli government changed policy. It did not want war. And the government had specifically told the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, to avoid any escalation with the Arab countries. To this end, the prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, was obsessed with obtaining nuclear weapons for Israel. He, he said this, quote, what Einstein, Oppenheimer, and Teller, the three of them are Jews, made for the United States could also be done by scientists in Israel for their own people. The Israeli acquisition of nuclear technology is a fascinating Cold War story in its own right, isn't it, Eamon? Oh, indeed. There's no question. I mean, the the secrecy, the piracy, you know, the stealing of information, the espionage, uh, the intrigue. But in the end, they got what they wanted. They did. They did this by working closely with perhaps a country that people wouldn't expect. <laughs> Funny enough, it's France. That's right, the French. Now, the French, they'd been developing their own nuclear deterrence. Uh, this was actually one of the consequences of the Suez Crisis. Remember, the Americans refused to support Britain and France in that war. And at the end of the war, the French were like, well, we can't trust the Americans. We don't want to be under their nuclear umbrella. We need our own deterrence. And so they were developing uh, nuclear bombs. And already, as we saw in episode six, France and Israel were really close allies. Uh, in fact, it was not the U.S. back then. It was France that was by far Israel's closest ally. France was the main supplier of weapons to Israel, uh, and Israel had been helping France combat Algerian freedom fighters by passing on intelligence gathered from North African Jews during the Algerian War for Independence. And, and remember, it was France that had arranged for Israel to contribute to the Suez campaign. And in fact, to get Israeli support for the Suez campaign, France had agreed to supply Israel with vital nuclear technology, which became part of Israel's Dimona reactor in the Negev desert. This reactor would play an important role in the 67 war. In fact, Thomas, the, the, you know, the, the, the French alliance with Israel goes further than just the nuclear cooperation. The entire Israeli Air Force at the time was made up actually of French fighter jets, you know, the Mystere and the Mirage. The Mirage fighter jets were really, you know, league ahead of their uh, Soviet counterparts. And so, you know, the French military cooperation with the Israelis played a decisive role 
you know, in the wars to come. In Israel's mind, they were developing nuclear weapons in order to prevent war. Israel hoped that a nuclear deterrent would convince their Arab enemies never to invade. Of course, that's not how the Arabs saw it. And they saw the development of an Israeli nuclear weapon program as a reason possibly to go to war to prevent Israel from getting a nuclear bomb. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Throughout this story, we will see you know, interpretations of, of one side's uh, actions by the other, which run exactly counter to the intentions of the enemy. Uh, this is, this is, of course, something that we have to always bear in mind when we're talking about war. You know, we have this objective God's eye view of the situation now with hindsight. But at the time, you know, what Israel is thinking, Egypt doesn't know. What Egypt is thinking, Israel doesn't know. They have to guess based on the moves that they can see. And this is the problem with conflicts. You always sleepwalk into conflict when you start second-guessing what your neighbors and adversaries and your enemies might be thinking. When you start second-guessing and you know you start you know underestimating what they are thinking, what they are trying to do, and you try to delve deeper into their mindset and you go into the wrong path rather than the right path, the path will lead to war. That was definitely true of the Six-Day War. It was true of the First World War. Actually, it was true of a lot of wars. Maybe even the recent war with Ukraine and Russia. And of course, like, I mean, um, if anyone wants to understand like, you know, how second-guessing um, and underestimating your enemies could lead to war, please read the book The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. It was published in the 1960s. And this book basically will give you an idea about how really, like, and I mean, second-guessing your enemies could lead to dire consequences. Okay, right. Now, that's Israel's perspective at the moment. They don't want war. They're developing a nuclear deterrent in order to prevent war. They've told the IDF not to foment war with the Arab states. Let, let's move now to Egypt and its president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Put us inside Nasser's head in the mid-1960s, Eamon. I mean, after the Syrian coup in 61 took Syria out of the UAR, the United Arab Republic, Nasser's prestige was damaged. Uh, and he began remorselessly attacking the Syrian regime. He, he began doing all sorts of slightly more aggressive things. What, 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 uh, what was going on inside Nasser's mind at the time? Nasser's mind was really like a scrambled egg at the time, and for a very good reason, because he was having one setback after another all across the Arab world. Nothing was going his way. Not just across the Arab world. In fact, the social and economic policies of Nasserism, which were becoming more and more extreme, nationalizing industry, nationalizing finance, uh, these were beginning to bear quite rotten fruit at home. And there was a growing unrest within Egypt. The economy wasn't doing great. Indeed, because of course, like, I mean, since when collectivization and, you know, nationalization of industries, like, I mean, and crony socialism ever work. And so that's exactly what happened to him. I mean, you know, and at the same time, there was a resurgent Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, there was a second wave of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, in Egypt in the 1960s. He really wasn't having a good time. And the pressure on him was just so great. Absolutely. And Nasser was still animated by uh, kind of anti-Israeli feelings. He had suffered two embarrassing defeats at the hands of Israel, or Egypt had at least, the 48 war and the 56 Suez crisis to some extent. He had not forgotten these defeats, but Nasser had disengaged from active hostility to Israel by the early 60s. He'd stopped supporting guerrilla attacks against Israeli territory, for example, because he believed that the Arab world needed to unite first 
and undergo a proper social and technological revolution before it took on Israel. So instead, Nasser was focused on shoring up his project of creating a pan-Arab union with Egypt at its center. I and mean, this was leading him to do more and more desperate things. I mean, in 1962, he invaded Yemen. Most people don't know this. Egypt invaded Yemen, trying to force Yemen to join with Egypt. I mean, there were sort of tens of thousands of Egyptian troops, tens of thousands dead. This was very much weighing down Nasser's ability to act. Indeed. And in fact, basically, that war soured the relationship with Saudi Arabia and with other Arab countries. And uh, some Arab people started to view Nasser as an imperialist himself rather than anti-imperialist. Soured relations with Saudi Arabia? My goodness, way more than that. I mean, Nasser was bombing Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was working with the United States to repel the Egyptian attack in Yemen. Very much similar to the situation going on in Yemen today. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so there was this alliance of conservative Arab states against Nasser. He was feeling blue. What he really wanted was a Syrian regime that recognized his leadership of the pan-Arab cause, or at least pretended to do so, and he got it in early 1963, uh, when, as we said in, in the last episode, both Syria and Iraq experienced successful Ba'athist coups, uh, and in order to strengthen their new regimes, the Ba'ath movement immediately initiated talks with Nasser on a new union, a new UAR between Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. Indeed, to the point where, you know, a new flag was created with three stars, which is, <laughs> you know, today's Iraq flag, funny enough, but to that, the Allahu Akbar on it. <laughs> this new union was greeted with huge jubilation, especially by the Palestinians. Uh, the signatories had made it a signature aim of uh, the new union to liberate Palestine. This was an explicit aim of their uh, agreement. And so the Arab street erupted in uh, in glee. So there were huge uh, riots inside the, the West Bank of Palestinians waving a flag with four stars on it because they, they were really hoping that uh, that Jordan would also uh, join this union. Indeed, because, the, you know, uh, the, the listener must remember that the West Bank at the time was part of Jordan. That's right. Now, Nasser's regional enemies greeted this new revived UAR with great dismay. Ben-Gurion, the Israeli prime minister, said that the new union meant the specter of a new holocaust. But perhaps more than anyone, it was King Hussein of Jordan who freaked out. Just like in 1958, when the first UAR was announced, in 1963, King Hussein was like, oh God, this is not what I want. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, don't forget for King Hussein, this is 1963. In 1958, uh, you know, his cousin, his dear cousin, King Faisal of Iraq was killed, you know. So he still feels five, five years later that uh, at any moment it could be him. He said, quote, the ring is closing around us once again. Poor King Hussein. He must have felt so insecure. Uh, and that wasn't helped when uh, U.S. intelligence learned that Egypt was in league with pro-Nasser officers in Jordan about launching a military coup there, a bit like what happened to his cousin in 58, a military coup that they hoped would incorporate Jordan into the UAR. And that's why the Israelis really freaked out when they felt that Jordan could be the next to fall, because if Jordan falls, then Israel will become extremely vulnerable, and that's why they threatened to uh, invade and annex the West Bank. This is 1963, dear listener. We're, we're, we're still leading up to the 67 war, but this is all really important context. Indeed. You know, you know in, in, in 2018, when I was in Israel, I've driven from Tel Aviv, you know, to Jerusalem. And it, it took literally 20 minutes, 20 minutes drive, exactly, to go from Tel Aviv to the border of the West Bank. That's it. So in reality, 
you know, for Israel, you know, the West Bank was its Achilles heel. If the West Bank is controlled by a hostile power, then what's going to happen is that they can cut Israel in half in 20, 30 minutes. That's it. There is no strategic depth. And so for the Israelis, they threaten Nasser and they threaten the Arabs that, you know, if Jordan falls a hostile power of there is a military coup, we will invade the West Bank to shore up our strategic depth and strategic defense. This threat by Israel to invade, in fact, made Nasser back off. So the, 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 any, any machinations inside Jordan to launch a coup there stopped. Uh, and in fact, by mid-63, so only three or four months after the new UAR was announced, the, the scheme had already basically failed. Uh, as we said in the last episode, Ba'athists and Nasserists, they didn't really like each other. There was a lot of infighting between the two groups. Uh, and in Syria, there was a massive massacre of Nasserists in Damascus, uh, so much so that Nasser broke off relations with Syria entirely. He called the Syrian regime fascist. So Israel must have heaved a sigh of relief, thinking, well, at least the Arabs, once again, are more divided than they are united. Indeed. Yet it was at this point that David Ben-Gurion suddenly resigned the premiership of Israel for mysterious reasons. You know, in fact, this is one of the great debates of history. Maybe he couldn't take the pressure. Who knows? Uh, but what's important for the 67 wars is his replacement. He was replaced as prime minister by Levi Eshkul, a Ukrainian Jew, as it happens. Levi Eshkul was of the, uh, you know, of the pragmatist, you know, school, you know, within, you know, the uh, long list of Israeli prime ministers. And he came to power hoping to de-escalate rather than escalate. His dream, you know, always basically was of having a, um, a more cordial relationship with his Arab neighbors. I mean, they were looking for acceptance rather than for confrontation. He, he had been a lifelong Zionist, an early player in the Israeli Zionist movement, a major player in the founding of the state of Israel. But yes, as you say, he was hoping, as really was the whole government establishment in Israel, for something like uh, peace or at least uh, an, you know, a, a modus vivendi with its neighbors. Now, Eshkol also, and this is really interesting, he had a long experience in water development, <laughs> which is important because water became a massive causus belli in the 67 war. Uh, you'll like this, Eamon. You're always talking about how, water, how, yeah. how water in the <laughs> Middle East explains so much. Indeed. There had long been tensions between Syria and Israel, especially over Israel's water development plans, which were diverting source waters of the Jordan River into Israel. Well, as you know, basically, Mount Hermon is, you know, one of the uh, most important sources for the, uh, you know, River Jordan. Yes, yeah, a very tall, a very tall mountain to the north of the Golan Heights, at the very tip of Israel uh, in that part of area, a very tall mountain. The White Cap Mountain actually sits uh, on, you know, uh, the meeting point of three borders, Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. And, you know, from the Lebanese side, it's my mother's village. <laughs> you know, so the village of Shiba, which in Aramaic means Saba, which means seven, oh, seven. in Arabic. Oh. Yeah, because it's shaped like the number seven in Aramaic. So from there, uh, you know, the ice cap uh, mountain, basically, like, and they provide a lot of the water that flows into the Jordan River. Actually, uh, that mountain, Mount Hermon, and it's called in Arabic Jabal al-Sheikh, you know, for those who, um, you know, who speak Arabic uh, among our listeners, um, in the in 1957, you know, that mountain was important for me personally because basically on the Lebanese side of that mountain, uh, in one of the springs and a waterfall there, in a very beautiful setting, that was the wedding of my mom and dad. 
Oh, Eamon, that's sweet. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So basically, the, you know, the, the, you know, the waters were flowing, you know, from uh, north to south, uh, going from Mount Hermon, going into, you know, the um, uh, Sea of Galilee and from there into the River Jordan. And, you know, of course, that was divided. That water was divided, you know, between the Arabs and the Israelis, um, you know, according to UN agreements. That's right. The UN had been invited in to mediate the, the dispute, and their plan allocated 38% of the Jordan's water to Israel. Okay, Israel was, in fact, uh, developing uh, the area, developing uh, the water resources of the area, and they were sticking more or less uh, to within that 38% uh, allocation. However, when the Ba'athist coup happened in Syria in 63, all diplomatic dialogue with Israel was suspended. And the new Ba'athist Syrian regime threatened what it called a suicide war with Israel over water. Uh, and this re resulted in 1964 to a rather remarkable Arab League summit. And the 1964 Arab League summit, it's when they decided to divert, you know, the water away from Israel, um, which actually amounted to an act of war. I mean, it's the Middle East, after all, water is so scarce. Israel certainly considered uh, the, the, pr the plan to divert its water uh, to be an existential threat, and they did prepare for war. This caused fighting again to break out across the DMZ uh, with the Syrians. And on the 16th of March, 1965, the Syrians fired on Israeli farmers in the DMZ. Now, they were settlers. Technically, they shouldn't have been there. They were fired upon, and a tractor driver, an Israeli tractor driver, was killed. Now, this was a pretext for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, to open fire, although they didn't actually target the place where the attack on the tractor had come from. They targeted the Syrian water diversion project. They'd had it in their sights, and they were waiting for an excuse to attack it. And the question was that since the Israelis were attacking uh, Syria right now, would the you know, Egyptians join the fight? Because, you see, in that summit of 1964, they created something called the United Joint Arab Command, you know, which actually was anything but united and joined. You know, so. <laughs> it did. It did. It was a military command that united all 13 Arab states' militaries. That, that's something. On paper only. Come on, Thomas. This was only on paper. What coordination was there? There was nothing. <laughs> Well, that is true. Nonetheless, people did wonder, is Nasser going to send in his troops uh, since Israel had attacked Syria? But, you know, he was bogged down in Yemen. He did not want to be lured into any war with Israel. Uh, and so he, he didn't do anything. That means that the United Arab Command, which was announced with great fanfare a few, uh, the year before, was just another example of Nasser sort of scrambling to make symbolic displays of Arab unity. But in fact, behind the scenes, he always favored a cautious, incremental approach. He hoped primarily to ensure Egypt's domination of the Arab world. Uh, and this is why, Thomas, I think, um, you know, the, the path to war, unfortunately, was paved, you know, with such, you know, jingoistic, nationalistic rhetoric. You know, for, for Nasser, you know, and for all the Arab leaders who actually inflamed the passions of the street about, you know, the glories of the Arabs, the restoration of such union and the crushing of Israel and its colonial backers. I mean, when, when you raise such expectations so high, then with high expectations, you know, these expectations, unless if they are satisfied, they will turn into dissatisfaction. And this is where, you know, Nasser put himself and trapped himself between a rock and a hard place, between his, 
انه بوبولس هو اكسبكتنج تو ماتش بيكوز اوف هيز ريتريك اند ذا ريالتيز اوف اي كانت وين ا وور اجينست اسرائيل Well, radical Arabist, pan-Arab expectations went up again in February 1966 when there was another coup inside Syria in which radical Ba'athists overthrew moderate Ba'athists. Uh, and uh, this is the coup that resulted in a certain military officer being made Minister of Defense. Do you know whom I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, indeed. Uh, Asad the father, Asad the senior, Hafiz al-Asad. Hafiz al-Assad, he became Minister of Defense in 1966. Of course, you know, in 1970, he would take full control of the country. But during the 67 war, he was Minister of Defense, Hafiz al-Assad. Now, this coup inside Syria that brought the radical Ba'athists to power in Damascus was provocative to Israel. Uh, the regime in Damascus supported, quote-unquote, direct popular struggle against Israel, by which they meant guerrilla warfare or, perhaps to speak more plainly, terrorism, however you want to describe it. Damascus was calling for revolution now against imperialism and Israel. And this was important because in the meantime, two new players had emerged on the regional chessboard. First, let's talk about the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, because it was another consequence of that 64 Arab League summit. So the Palestinian Liberation Organization was established as a political organization initially, not a military one. And it was Nasser's tool in, in order to control the internal Palestinian narrative, which angered so many other uh, Arab leaders, including, including King Hussein, because he was the king of the Palestinians as well as the Jordanians. You know, and this was seen as Nasser stepping on Hussein's territory. Beyond the refugee problem, the Palestinians, you know, they hadn't really been a political player. They had been absorbed into Jordan, uh, and the Arab powers were making decisions on their behalf, uh, you know, including by creating the PLO. Nasser, the Arab League, were still managing Palestinian affairs. And this actually proves, more or less, that the Palestinians, even by the 1960s, they did not yet develop what they call basically like, and I mean, aspirations for a statehood, for a separate Palestinian state. I mean, at the time, they were just hoping for a larger Arab entity to incorporate them as part of the pan-Arab nationalism. So as you rightly said, Eamon, uh, the PLO was connected to Egypt, and therefore it followed Nasser's orders. And, and, and for that reason, they did not launch attacks inside Israel because Nasser did not want a war. However... That was not the case with the other Palestinian player that emerged in the mid-60s, Fatah, or the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. Many people think that the PLO and Fatah are the same thing. They ended up merging, and we'll get to that. But in the beginning, they were very different. Well, Fatah was actually like in a model around, you know, the contemporary at the time, you know, the contemporary uh, socialist revolutionary uh, movements such as, you know, Castro and Che Guevara. And, and of course, like, you know, I mean, among the Fatah, uh, you know, founders, you know, of the very famous Yasser Arafat. Uh, Yasser Arafat. He, I mean, in the 80s and 90s when I was coming of age, my God, there was, there was perhaps no more iconic Arab. He was everywhere. Indeed, with his, you know, wearing the kufiya and the way like and he was wearing his military uniform, he was trying to be like, I mean, a mix of a Che Guevara and uh, Qassam or whatever. But anyway, uh, he and Fatah were far more violent and far more revolutionary because they were at the end of the day, like, and, I mean, you know, a bunch of students you know, coming from Cairo and Amman and uh, other places in order to, um, you know, uh, advocate for 
the overthrow of Israel as a whole, like, in, I mean, in a completely, like the annihilation of the state of Israel as it was known at the time. Yeah, Yasser Arafat and Fatah favored, quote-unquote, popular struggle. They'd been inspired by the success of the Algerian War for Independence. Uh, they identified the U.S. as part of the enemy camp. They saluted the USSR, China especially, they loved Mao, and all the non-aligned countries. So in the Cold War kind of uh, binary, they were definitely setting themselves against the United States. They were obsessed with the idea, rightly as it turned out, that Israel was on the brink of acquiring a nuclear bomb. This was part of their motivation for, for fomenting all-out war. They wanted war as soon as possible to prevent that from happening. And starting in early 65, Fatah began guerrilla attacks against Israeli forces. Uh, and so the IDF, in turn, began commando attacks on Fatah positions inside the Jordanian-held West Bank. Uh, eventually, the Fatah attacks would grow more and more sophisticated because they received aid by the new radical Ba'athist regime in Damascus. This kind of climaxed in November 1966 when Fatah guerrillas, who were attacking Israel from the West Bank, which Jordanian held, but they were being supported by Syria. Jordan didn't support Fatah. They, the Jordanians hated Fatah, but the Syrians were supporting Fatah from within Jordan to attack Israel. So th these attacks were getting worse and worse, and eventually uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force decided to launch a massive raid inside the West Bank. This raid on the village of Samu is is notorious. Indeed, I mean it was uh, you know the it, it led to significant loss of life uh, you know among uh, militants and civilians, and it was widely condemned you know widely condemned across the Arab world, and it galvanized you know public opinion. It was called Operation Shredder, um, and uh, eight <laughs> yes. tanks, four hundred paratroopers were sent in. They captured the village, they, they blew up, they dynamited 50 houses, the police station, a medical clinic, a school, and a mosque. It was pretty pretty harsh uh, reprisal. This actually forced the Jordanian troops to intervene. So fighting broke out between the IDF and the Jordanian troops. Even uh, jets were scrambled. The, the Jordanian Air Force got involved. Two Jordanian jets were shot down by the Israelis. It was pretty tense, especially... Uh, since following this attack, huge riots again broke out across the West Bank. Uh, there were demands for the entire Jordanian government to resign. King Hussein's rule was on a knife's edge. He felt extremely threatened. He was so politically weakened by all of this that he felt himself being compelled closer to Nasser and the other revolutionary Arab regimes to bolster his credential with his people. Practically, he was bullied into it. And those Arab revolutionary governments were getting stronger because in November 66, by some miracle, Egypt and Syria set aside their rivalry. And to the great surprise of the Israelis, they signed a renewed mutual defense agreement. Now, it's important to point out that Nasser actually hoped that the military pact with Syria would restrain Syria. He was worried that Syrian aggression was provoking Israel into war. He didn't want a war. But the Israelis saw Arabs uniting against us. It's another example of, of how both sides misunderstood the other's motivation, which climaxed uh, in a massive way, in a way the first shot of the 67 war, in a way, on the 7th of April, 1967. I mean, it's all again coming back to a tractor, yet a second tractor. <laughs> <laughs> What is the problem with tractors? You know, they always cause trouble. <laughs> um, so Syrian regular troops 
you know, fired uh, upon a agricultural tractor on the Israeli side. The, you know, the driver was killed. So, however, this time the Israeli Air Force immediately scrambled and immediately went into a frenzied action. And they went after every Syrian military target they can find, from Al-Qanetra and uh, you know, the Golan Heights all the way to Damascus. They dropped 65 tons of bombs you know, on these positions to the point where even when the Syrian Air Force started to scramble to resist them, they shot down two uh, Syrian MiGs, you know, fighter jets, over Damascus itself. What's interesting about that event is that the Israeli government had not been consulted. The commander of the Air Force acted alone. This is an example of how the tensions, the military tensions that had been ratcheting up over the previous years were, were creating a dynamic within the military, not just in Israel, as we'll see, but in Egypt and elsewhere, a dynamic where the military felt it needed to respond so quickly that civilian governments were being slightly sidelined. But again, in this case, the Arabs and the Soviets who were backing them did not know this. They did not know that the Air Force had acted without government approval. They assumed it was the first move in an Israeli attempt to bring down the Syrian regime. And that left Nasser totally humiliated. Humiliated again. Yeah, why? Because, you see, Jordan was attacked. That village of Samu was attacked. And nothing happened. And, you know, Nasser you know, did not do anything. Then Syria was attacked. You know, was you know the, the the Israeli Air Force made a mincemeat out of Syrian forces and the Syrian Air Force, and Nasser yet again did not do anything. So really, you know, since you are not good in terms of uh, economy, you are no good in terms of uh, you know diplomacy. What are you good for if you are not you know going to deter the Israelis? The Soviets were also really worried at this point. So just to kind of remind the listener, Soviet military advisors had been training the Egyptian army now for over a decade. Uh, and in fact, uh, in September 65, so just 18 months before, a huge new arms deal had been brokered between the Soviets and Egypt. <laughs> and Nasser, in fact, had been made a hero of the Soviet Union during a visit to Cairo by Khrushchev in 1964. That shows you how close the countries had become. So much for non-alignment, huh? At around this time, the head of the commander of all the Warsaw Pact countries, so this is like the Soviet NATO, the commander of the Warsaw Pact countries paid Nasser a visit. Uh, he told Nasser that the Egyptian army was battle-ready, offering encouragement to Nasser, but in fact knowing full well that this was mere flattery. The thing is, the Soviets had decided they wanted Nasser to do something. Uh, the USSR had immediately become a very close ally of the new radical Ba'athist regime in Damascus. And following that April attack on Syria by Israel, Syria had been rocked by protests organized by the Muslim Brotherhood. <laughs> and there was an increase in terrorist attacks across the border into Israel, which led the Israelis to say that they would have no choice but to launch even more decisive reprisals. The Soviets began to fear that the Ba'athist regime was on the verge of collapse and or conquest by Israel. So the Soviets, unfortunately, you know, and in their infinite lack of wisdom, they decided that to manipulate Nasser into believing that the Israelis are about to uh, attack Syria and depose the Ba'athist regime in Damascus. They told Nasser that they have solid intelligence that Israeli armored brigades are massing on the Syrian-Israeli border. And therefore, because he already told the Soviets before that any 
uh, attack by Israel against Syria will lead to a Egyptian intervention. So the Soviets thought, aha, you know, this is how we can manipulate, you know, uh, this guy into actually doing something in order to prevent our allies in Damascus, you know, uh, falling. And so that is basically how the intelligence was passed. It was false intelligence to Nasser. Nasser immediately ordered mobilization. And this is when you can see that once you give the military more power, they do foolish things. That's absolutely right. So you have, you know, Israel's now panicked. Israel thinks that Syria and Egypt are planning an attack. Syria is panicked. Syria thinks Israel's going to invade. Egypt is panicked. It thinks that Israel's going to attack Syria and lure Egypt into a war that it does not want. So it's in this context that on the 16th of May, 1967, the Egyptian army chief of staff orders the United Nations Emergency Force, the UNEF, which was in the Sinai, to withdraw from its positions along the Israel-Sinai border. Now, it's important. Just like before, when the, when the Israeli Air Force attacked Syria, this order did not come from Nasser. It came from the Egyptian army chief of staff. This was a sign that Nasser wasn't in complete control of the military. The logic of war was, in a way, overwhelming the political decision-making. In fact, Field Marshal Abdel Hakim Amr, you know, the head of the Egyptian military, uh, you know, he actually requested that the UN forces withdraw from the border only. They just, he just wanted them to go south. He did not want them to leave the entire Sinai. That's right. The UNEF first asked Israel if it could perhaps take up positions on its side of the line. Uh, of the border to be a buffer, but Israel refused. Israel never wanted UN troops inside its territory. This put the UN in a bind. I mean, it couldn't just withdraw its forces south away from the border with Israel deeper into Sinai and watch as Egypt amassed troops along the border and the two sides start fighting. Uh, you know, they're, peace, they're peacekeeping troops. What would be the point of doing that? So they, they were in a bind and they were, they were left thinking, what do we do? Now, the following day, tensions ratchet up again when two Egyptian fighter jets are spotted flying over the Dimona reactor. Remember that, dear listener? The reactor that was the center of Israel's nuclear development plan. I mean, of course, for the Israelis, they thought, oh, this must be like, I mean, an Egyptian, you know, reconnaissance mission, you know, preparing for a strike on our, you know, nuclear reactor. So the Israelis really freaked out now. It, and it was certainly widely believed that already uh, at that time, Israel had a couple of crude nuclear bombs uh, that they could draw on and that they would be able to produce a proper one in six to eight weeks should it be required. So Israel knew that was the case. Israel had reason to think its enemies knew that was the case. So, you know, it thought, oh, my God, they're going to they're going to attack our nuclear program as a way of uh, luring us into war. But it's important to note that Nasser still did not want war. Even the flyover at the Demona reactor was just a show of force. All he wanted to do was deter an Israeli attack on Syria. Again, we come back to the fact that everyone was engaging in second-guessing the other. Meanwhile, the UNEF had reached its decision. So, as I said, on the grounds that it couldn't just withdraw to the south and watch Egypt and Israel fight each other, uh, it ordered a full withdrawal. All UN troops evacuated and the Sinai was free for Egypt to move its troops into. So Nasser was really praying to God, you know, please, you know, let the UN stay, but the UN did not. And the UN decided to evacuate Sinai. And by evacuating Sinai, they created this void, this, you know, you know vacuum that he needed to fill immediately. Now, 
he really didn't want to put the Egyptian military into Sinai, but now he has to. You know, his hand was forced. So he sent the Egyptian military into Sinai. And now that they are in Sinai, you know, okay, the Arab world is waiting. The Arab world is waiting with the bated breath, like, you know, hey, you know, do something. So what he ends up doing, he closes the Strait of uh, Tehran, you know, at the mouth of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba against Israeli shipping military and civilian alike. And, you know, in international law, this is an act of war. Not only Israeli shipping, actually. He closed it to all ships carrying strategic materials to Israel, i.e. oil, uh, most of which, interestingly enough, was coming from Iran at the time, uh, which back in those days was an Israeli ally. (laughs) Indeed, the Shah was an ally of Israel at the time. So that was, you know, as far as the Israelis were concerned, you know, the last straw. Yes, so this was an act of war. Israel made it clear this is an act of war. But the funny thing is, Nasser still didn't want a war. And and one week later, at the end of May 1967, he said so. He said Egypt would not be the one to fire the first shot. What he really hoped for was that by closing the Straits of Tehran, he could claim to have had some kind of victory over Israel, placate the Arab masses, and go back to business as usual. But it got out of control. By this point, it was it was going to happen anyway. Maybe, you know, Nasser didn't want war. But that was not the case with the Egyptian military. The Egyptian military were, you know, really eager to wash away the humiliation of 48 and 56. And Abdel Hakim Amr, the Minister of Defense. He put together a plan called Operation Dawn, or Amaliyat al-Fajr, in which uh, an invasion of Israel actually was, you know, uh, you know, meticulously planned and put forward. Um, and it was supposed to be launched on 27th of May. Of course, the Israeli intelligence, you know, got hold of that. They won the Americans, the Americans won the Soviets. And of course, the Soviets came back to uh, Nasser and said, hey, 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 like, you know, we wanted you just to be on the border to scare the Israelis, not, from, to, not to invade Syria, but not to start a real war, please. <laughs> Nasser had actually not uh, greenlit the plan. He was on the fence about it. He also didn't really know what was going on at this stage. He was slightly afraid. Is Israel going to attack? We, you know, he didn't know. But th- all, this whole thing left Israel on even higher alert. In their mind, Egypt had been on the verge of invading their country. All the while, other Arab states had begun mobilizing. Sudan, Iraq, others, even Saudi Arabia. They all began saying openly with this you know, pan-Arab rhetoric that they would contribute to any war with Israel. The tensions were at, you know, really, you could, you could cut it with a knife. Indeed. And, of course, then came the thing that pushed the Israelis over the edge. King Hussein signing a mutual defense agreement with Nasser. Yeah, this was really surprising on the 30th of May. King Hussein and Nasser had been enemies basically quite openly for well over a decade. And yet there they are signing a mutual defense agreement in the midst of all this tension. Nasser states, quote, our basic objective will be the destruction of Israel. The Arab people want to fight. This coming from a man who didn't want a war. This is a way. This is the, another sign that Nasser's rhetoric was overwhelming his own cautiousness, you know. But this whole situation was being goaded on by other Arab nationalist leaders, real radicals, such as Hafez al-Assad, who said, quote, Our forces are now entirely ready, not only to repulse the aggression, but to initiate the act of liberation itself and to expel the Zionist presence in the Arab homeland. So this is a real threat to Israel. So in the early hours of 4th of June, uh, 1967, Uh, Even though the Israelis were outnumbered three to one on almost every metric, 
3 to 1 when it comes to aircrafts 3 to 1 when it comes to tanks 3 to 1 when it comes to deployed troops um the israelis nonetheless decided to test the odds and they launched a you know one of the most audacious and successful air raids in modern history so yes the war started on the 5th of june at 7:45 in the morning with operation focus and indeed, it was a focused operation. The, the goal was to destroy the Egyptian air force. Indeed, the Israelis ironically learned this you know, lesson from the Germans <laughs> during World War II, the Blitzkrieg. The idea that in order to achieve quick, decisive victory, you need to really annihilate your enemy's air force and you achieve immediate air superiority within the first 24 to 48 hours. And that was the Israeli objective. They certainly achieved this. Egypt was caught off guard, uh, in fact, because Israeli intelligence had cleverly planted false news reports in newspapers saying that the IDF was on vacation <laughs> and that the Air Force would be carrying out routine training missions. So the Egyptian Air Force was in a way cooling its heels. And in fact, the, the advance warning systems that the Egyptian Air Force relied on was not even online. It wasn't on. So 183 Israeli jets, they flew so low over the Mediterranean and they surprised you know, the Egyptian Air Force when they attacked 14 airfields um, with such precision that they destroyed 83% of the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. 338 Egyptian jets were destroyed. You know, and at that time, Field Marshal Abdel Hakim Amr and the head of the military intelligence, Salah Nasr, and many other generals were actually having a hangover from the previous night party. <laughs> and, you know, and they were in one of the military headquarters somewhere outside of Cairo when they saw what was happening. And so they actually were trying to rush back to the Ministry of Defense. So they went to one of the airports, but they found it was bombed. So, you know, and the, and the military car that dropped them there already left. So they called for a taxi. I'm not kidding. They called for a taxi <laughs> <laughs> to come and pick them up while the country is being bombed and the air force is being shredded by the Israelis. Uh, and they all crammed into one taxi trying to get to the Ministry of Defense so they to find out what really was happening. <laughs> Talk about total... Surprise and total incompetence. They didn't know it was happening because Radio Cairo was pumping out the usual propaganda, which was masking the scale of the Israeli attack. It was saying that Egypt was on the verge of victory. It was being believed by its own military leaders. And not, not just in Egypt, but actually all around the Arab world, they were thinking, oh, Egypt is winning. But in fact, it was the exact opposite. That very morning, uh, Israel invaded uh, the Sinai Peninsula in force and within a day had captured the entire thing. In, in response to all of this, Jordan begins shelling Israel from the West Bank. And so on the 6th of June, Israel invades the West Bank and within a single day had taken the whole thing. The Syrians begin shelling Israel. And on the 9th of June, the IDF invades the Golan Heights and again captures it the very next day. It had been a total rout. It was a total rout. One, because the Israelis had superior weapons from France. But two, which is extremely important, training training, training, and training. You cannot underestimate how many times the Israelis were drilling and drilling and drilling and training and training and preparing you know, for this. The you know, average Israeli soldier and the average Israeli pilot had almost nine times the amount of training and the amount of drilling that their Arab counterparts had. And finally, number three, intelligence. Intelligence was really important. 
Well, on the Arab side, it was a total disaster. Abdel Latif al-Baghdadi, a former Egyptian vice president, later said, quote, We felt as though we were dreaming. It was mayhem, like a nightmare. How could our air force have been wiped out in the space of one day and our ground troops decimated the next? How could they be so strong that we couldn't hold out for more than 36 hours? That's what happened when you have a very well-motivated, very well-trained, uh, and advanced you know, and coordinated in a military. No matter how small it is, it can take on any larger military that is not coordinated, not well-trained, not well-motivated. The aftermath of the Six-Day War was sort of inconceivable. The Suez Canal became a war zone, and the canal was closed for eight years, disrupting global shipping to a degree that we can hardly imagine. Uh, the Palestinians, once again, you know, they were pretty much screwed. Uh, at the time, there were about one million inhabitants of the West Bank. About 25% of them became refugees. Again, another wave of Palestinian refugees, mostly to Jordan. Uh, and and in, in addition, 130,000 Syrian refugees from the Golan Heights were created by the war. Fatah and the PLO, as we said before, merged in the wake of the 67 disaster. And uh, now Yasser Arafat was in charge of the whole organization, the new merged organization, and they began escalating their tactics. Not only would they attack rural sites as they had been, they were now going to target urban areas as their uh, strategy became more explicitly terroristic. Uh, in addition, Palestinian nationalism, which as we've said again and again, was not really uh, a thing, it now becomes a real thing. More and more Palestinians are saying, we need to push Israelis out of the way and take over historic Palestine for ourselves with our own state. I think possibly the greatest personal tragedy of the 67 war is with Gamal Abdel Nasser himself. On the 9th of June, in the midst of the war, it's still going on, uh, he announces his resignation. I mean, he was, he was heartbroken. No, no shit, Sherlock. Like, and basically, he was responsible for the whole mess. Like, and I mean, <laughs> he did not understand the law of unintended consequences. But nonetheless, you know, uh, the Egyptian people, you know, being, you know, at the time, the naive people they were at the time, I mean, they just swarmed the streets in their millions asking for him to uh, remain in power um, and shouting his name and, you know, slogans of, you know, La Ayraeus, you know, but no, Mr. President. And the Soviets also urged him to stay. In fact, you know, he received a telegram personally, like from uh, you know the Soviet Premier, you know, promising that all the military hardware that Egypt lost, you know, in this war, the aircrafts, the tanks, the artillery, all of this will be completely replaced and replenished by the USSR, free of charge. That was a very sweet deal. <laughs> It sure was. That was an incentive. So Nasser changed his mind. He did not resign. Uh, and to some extent, I suppose, revived. Uh, he led uh, an Arab summit in Khartoum later that year. This is the famous Arab summit of the three no's. No peace, no recognition, no negotiation with Israel. And this led to what's called the war of attrition, a kind of constant bombardment uh, by the Arab allies of new Israeli positions that lasted three years. Not only the bombardment of the uh, Israeli positions uh, east of the canal, but also commando raids, you know, and, and it was actually a tit-for-tat commando raids between the two sides, and it was... As it had been since 1948, it never ended, there wasn't peace. Definitely no peace. However, just around the corner, a prospect of peace arrived when, in September of 1970, unexpectedly, 
Gamal Abdel Nasser, the great man of Arab unity, the great Arab of the mid-20th century, died. Uh, he, he had a heart attack, and he died. His funeral is something to be seen. Uh, look it up on YouTube. It's, uh, it's amazing. You, might, you would have thought maybe Jesus Christ himself had died. <laughs> uh, but uh, he is followed by uh, a, a, a long-term colleague of his, to some extent, the, the brains behind the whole Nasserist project from the beginning, uh, Anwar Sadat. Anwar Sadat becomes president of Egypt and immediately signals his intention to reach some sort of agreement with Israel. Well, first of all, I must uh, state to the dear listeners that Anwar Sadat is my favorite president of Egypt. You know, uh, you know hands down, he's my favorite. And uh, you know, later I'll explain why. The first thing he did, actually, uh, in 1971, and he insisted again on that in 1972, you know, is to ask the Israelis, please, you know, uh, can you withdraw 32 kilometers east of the canal and that area will become Egyptian zone of control so shipping can resume and so we can make money out of the canal. I mean, and, you know, we can give you whatever guarantees. It will be demilitarized. You know, but still, 32 kilometers east of the canal, that will be ours. And the Israelis were saying, no, 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 because the Israelis already built a an impregnable, you know, line of defense, you know, from the uh, mouth of the canal in the north to the mouth of the canal in the south, and that was called the Bar-Lev line of defense, so one of the most impregnable lines of defense in modern history. Or so they thought. In fact, oh, yeah. uh, in 1973... On the 6th of October, 1973, which was Yom Kippur, the holiest day uh, in the Jewish calendar, Anwar Sadat, having been convinced that Israel would never agree to any sort of peace unless the Arabs could have something like a military victory, launched the Yom Kippur War, as it's known. Uh, it lasted from the 6th to the 25th of October, 1973, and this podcast episode, God knows, has gone on long enough, so we cannot... Uh, talk about it in any detail. The main point is this line, what's it called, Eamon? The Bar-Lev line. That's right. The Bar-Lev line was fantastically, heroically, and miraculously breached by the Egyptian troops. Yeah. The crossing was something of a legend. While the war itself wasn't exactly a victory for the Arabs. Not at all. In the end, Israel beat them all back. But at the beginning, there was something fantastic that happened. Indeed. And you see, like, you know, the crossing, you see, this is why the Egyptians to this day, they always celebrate every day, every year on the 6th of October, the crossing, the crossing, that crossing, basically, which is the, the miraculous crossing of the uh, canal. In fact, one of my teachers when I was in middle school in Saudi Arabia, he was Egyptian and he was a conscript in the Egyptian military in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. And just to show you basically about like, you know, the heroic, you know, uh, Egyptians and their little ding you know, rubber, you know, boats, like, you know, crossing, you know, and using their high-pressure hoses in order to uh, bring down the sand fortifications of the Israelis, you know, but, you know, he was talking about it so animated to the point where he reached the point where he said, even the dolphins came out of the water fighting with us. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it conjured in my image, like, you know, basically, you know, dolphins with their fins, you know, basically holding AK-47s and shooting and... <laughs> You know, we always grew up with so many movies produced by the Egyptian drama companies about the crossing. They never talk about what happened after the crossing because it was embarrassing. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> it just we crossed. That's it. That's the most important thing. We did cross. We did breach the bar level, and I give them that. It was really a um, a, a piece of military genius. It's just a question of what to do next, and they failed at that. Well, the Yom Kippur War did create the conditions for something like peace, uh, which was finally achieved several years later when Anwar Sadat went to the Knesset in Jerusalem and said that Egypt would like to make peace with Israel. Uh, we'll probably get to that story sometime in Conflicted. We don't have time now, uh, you know, because another great story from the Yom Kippur War is the Arab oil embargo that it created, which changed everything. Uh, and we, we're going to talk about that next time. Uh, as far as this episode is concerned, to, to sort of close it out, I find, in terms of its historical impact, one of the most interesting things about the 67 and 73 wars is how it marked the end of, of mid-century Arab nationalism as the Arabs grew very disillusioned with the promises of secular Arab republicanism, very disillusioned with the kind of you know modernization programs that the socialist leadership were constantly offering them without getting anything back in return or not getting nearly as much as they were promised. And instead, they began to retreat away from this form of sort of modern development, modern nationalism, modern patriotism, et cetera, and instead moved in the direction of a renewed political Islamism. Indeed. As for now, because we should raise the question of a clash of civilizations <laughs> that we're supposed to uh, at any rate. I mean, I think you can see the 67 war, the humiliations uh, that the Arabs suffered at the end of that war, the 73 war. We can, you can see this period as the, as the time when mid-century Arab nationalism and all the promise that it held out to the Arab public was lost. And the Arabs began a move towards a greater cynicism towards that vision of modernity, and instead retreated back to what they thought was their own civilization, something more native to, to the Middle East, native to Arab culture, uh, and that's the, the resurgence of Islam, especially in its political, its Islamist form. In fact, Thomas, just nine months, like literally nine months before uh, the 1967 Six Days War and the humiliation of it, there was a little event that was happening in a jail cell somewhere in Egypt that will have a grave impact. It will be the beginning, you know, of the rise of Islamism and the beginning of the decline of Arab nationalism. It is the execution of a relatively unknown Egyptian thinker by the name of Sayyid Qutb. Nasser had him executed, you know, just nine months before the humiliation of 1967. Little did he know that by doing so, he sealed the fate of Egypt and the fate of the Middle East for many decades to come. Arab nationalism wasn't dead, uh, but it was now the radicals who were in the driver's seat. A new generation of Arab strongmen came to the fore. Assad, eventually Saddam and others, but perhaps most dramatically, Gaddafi. <laughs> These characters, and especially Gaddafi, are what we'll be <laughs> discussing Next time, join us in two weeks, dear listener, for the next episode of Conflicted. If you don't already, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at MH Conflicted. And if you would like to carry on the conversation and learn more about the topics discussed here on Conflicted, you can search for Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook, where you'll find fascinating conversations and debate between other fans of the show. 
Those of you who subscribe to the show will know that each week, Eamon and I choose a different listener question from Twitter and Facebook to answer for our exclusive bonus content section. You could be in with a chance of having your name read out on the show and hearing your question answered by subscribing to ad-free listening and extended bonus content for just 99p on Apple Podcasts. Or if you listen on Spotify, find Conflicted Extra to also listen ad-free and get access to extended bonus episodes for just 99p per month on Spotify. Join us again in two weeks' time for another great episode of Conflicted. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Rowan Bishop. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Production support and fact-checking by Molly Freeman. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley.